Thank you for being here today as we begin the third week in our current series called Conversations. Uh, and the idea behind this series is that God uses everyday conversations to share the gospel with broken people who live in a broken world. And you see these little words there, anyone, someone, everyone, and no one. That really is kind of the, the summary of each week's message that, first of all, you can't save anyone. But wouldn't it be nice if we could? Anybody, anybody would, if you could, you would, right? You'd share the gospel and make sure that they gave their life to Christ. But you can't save anyone. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. That's what we talked about in week one. The number two, week two was... You can tell someone how to be saved. You can't save anyone, but you can tell someone how to be saved. Your job is not to sell them on Jesus. Your job is to tell them about Jesus. Today, I want to talk to you about that word, everyone. That you can show everyone what it means to be saved. You can't save anyone. You can tell someone, but you can show everyone what it means to be saved. Some conversations start with observation. Some conversations start through observation by people watching the way that you live your life. So the title of the message today is, Make Them Curious. By the way that you live your life, show them what it means to be saved. I've been reading a book, actually I finished the book, uh, by Mark Rick, former coach at Georgia called Make the Call. Really good book, I'd recommend it if you like sports, you might want to get that one, Make the Call. Mark Rick, former coach at Georgia, years before that was a quarterback in college, and he had a buddy on the football team named John Peasley. They not only played football together, but they partied together pretty often. One particular summer, though, John changed. When he came back to school, he went from being a really angry kind of guy who was always looking for a party or a fight to being a very different kind of a guy who had a real peace about him. And Mark said, and I quote, you couldn't keep from noticing the difference in him. So finally, after Mark watched him for a while, Mark actually asked him, what's happened to you, man? And John Peasley told Mark that he had become a Christian, and he tried as best he could as a new believer to explain to Mark what changed his life and the difference Jesus made. As Mark listened to John Peasley talk, he thought, that's what I need. I need that. I need that kind of peace that he's got. But Mark told John, he said, I need to think about this first. And the more he thought about it, the more he realized that there were some sins in his life he didn't want to give up. And so he turned down the opportunity to put his faith in Christ. But here's the point. Some conversations, some gospel conversations begin with observation. People watching how you live your life. And they may or may not put their faith in Christ. They may or may not make that decision, but your job is to make them curious by the way you live your life. Now, this idea that your life can actually start a gospel conversation is actually rooted in Scripture. So I want you to take your Bibles and open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. By the way, I'm going to finish Mark's story at the end of the message today right now. I just want you to turn your attention with me to two verses in 1 Peter chapter 3. As we read this text, for some of you, you're going to get hung up on something. And I'll go ahead and tell you that now. You're going to get hung up on something. But as we read this text, 
I want you to just be looking for this idea that your life that you live can actually perhaps cause someone to be curious about why you live that way. So let's read the text. Here's what it says. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Now, now these two verses are part of a longer passage devoted to wives and husbands and how they're to function in the home. That's what verses 1 through 7 are all about. But of course, as we read this text, the word that leaps off the page to our modern ears is that word submission. The word literally means to submit yourself or to subject yourself to someone else with the implication of following their leadership. That's what the word means. Or to put it another way, submission is not about inferiority at all. But submission is rather a voluntarily recognizing that the husband is God's appointed leader, spiritual leader of the home. So submission in this context that Peter is writing about is the orderly operation, the divine plan for how the home should operate. Now, let me pause and say I am acutely aware that how, of how sensitive the issue is of submission in a marriage, especially in a marriage where the husband is abusive. I'm acutely aware of what a struggle that is, that the husband is physically or emotionally abusive. And I don't think that Peter here is addressing that issue at all. I don't think he's trying to force a person to endure abuse. I don't think that's his, his intention. That's not the biblical concept of submission. Peter isn't writing to put wives in their place. That's not why he's writing. Biblical submission has a greater purpose, and that's what Peter is writing about, especially in the life of an unbeliever. That biblical submission can have a larger or greater purpose. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to read verse 1 and 2 with me again. This time, I just want you not to get hung up on that word submission or submissive, and, and I want you to look instead for a phrase. And the phrase I want you to look for is the short phrase, so that. Alright, so let's read it again. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by, by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. It's an important so that. Here's the point that Peter is making. When a wife lives a Christ-like life, her attitudes and her actions can win a husband who might otherwise be hard-hearted towards the gospel. I want to say that again. If you're watching online, I want to make sure you get this. That when a wife lives a Christ-like life, her attitudes and her actions can win over a husband who otherwise might be hard-hearted toward the gospel. I want you to underline, if you have your Bibles there with a pen, I want you to underline these words if you mark your Bible. They may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. It's a powerful sentence. Peter seems to have in mind the consistent, virtuous, godly character of a wife. Uh, he's probably got in mind a, a godly wife, godly woman who is not perfect. She doesn't do it right all the time. But day in and day out, her husband can see, as he says in verse 2, the purity and the reverence of her life. 
day in and day out, this ungodly husband or this unbelieving husband, I should say, can see something in her life that's not in his. Day in and day out, he notices the purity and the reverence of her life. Day in and day out, she lives out what she says she believes. And a wife like that cannot be ignored. Or maybe I should say it this way, a life like that cannot be ignored. Because you see, really, although this is written to wives regarding their husbands, it would also be just as applicable to husbands regarding their wives. As far as I know, this is the only place in Scripture where it talks of winning someone to Christ without words. I don't know of another place in the Bible where it talks about that. Winning someone to Christ without words. A lot of times people will talk about that. They'll say, well, I, I really, I'm not comfortable sharing my faith with my family or I'm not comfortable sharing my faith with my friend or I'm not comfortable sharing my faith with my coworker. but I'm just going to let my life be a witness. Most of the time, if we're honest, that's a cop-out. It's a cop-out because we're too afraid to actually say anything about Jesus to those people. And so we say, well, I'm just going to let my life be a witness. But when you look at the New Testament, the vast majority of the time, the pattern seems to be that God uses human voices. We talked about that last week. pattern seems to be God uses human voices, and those who know Jesus are supposed to tell those who don't know Him. However, sometimes your actions really do speak louder than words, especially in the home. Especially in the home. Your actions speak louder than words. There's some important lessons woven through 1 Peter chapter 3. Let me tell you how we're going to handle this text today. We're going to do two things. First of all, we're going to address what Peter addresses, and that is we're going to look at how he applies this to women who are married to men who are not believers. We're going to look at that in that context. And then the second thing that we're going to do is that we're going to talk about how this applies to all of our lives. So yes, this is written to women who are married to unbelieving husbands, but there is a way in which as we look at the text, you'll see this really applies to all of our lives as Christians. So let's begin with that very specific encouragement to wives. And in fact, this is so specific, it's not just written to wives, it is written to Christian wives. And in fact, it is even more specific than that. This is not just written to Christian wives, it is written to Christian wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. And here's what Peter wants to say to those ladies. Your behavior in the home is a gospel issue. That is so crucial that you understand that. Peter is writing specifically to Christian women who are married to unbelieving husbands. And the text doesn't say, but likely these were women who were married to unbelievers before they were saved. In other words, when they got married, they were both unbelievers. Then the wife became a believer, the husband did not, and now she's in a difficult situation. The reason I say that is because the first century teaching of the early church is that a, uh, an unbeliever should never be married to, uh, or, or a believer should never be married to an unbeliever, that they should not be unequally yoked together. You'll find that in 1 Corinthians 7.39 and 2 Corinthians 6.14. But sometimes that happened, right? And sometimes it was because one accepted Christ and the other didn't. So in their present circumstances, these wives found themselves in a relationship with an unbelieving spouse. Peter explains to these women that the way you live your life in your home is a gospel issue. 
Your words may fall on deaf ears, wives. Your words may fall on deaf ears, but your life cannot be ignored. Look at the text again. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of, your, of their wives. Peter's not chastising these ladies. Please understand what he's doing here. In fact, this is so encouraging. Peter is not chastising them. He's trying to say to them, dear ladies, there is still hope for your husband. If you are a Christian woman today and you're married to an unbelieving husband, I want you to know there is still hope for your unbelieving husband. If you're watching online and you're burdened that you're in a relationship where you're a believer and your spouse is not, I want you to know there is still hope for your unbelieving spouse. I've been a pastor for 35 years and in those 35 years of ministry, I've known many godly women who have to deal with the heartache of an unbelieving husband. And they'll usually say one of three things. They will usually say, first of all, I've talked to him until I'm blue in the face, but he just ignores me. Preacher, I've talked to him and talked to him and talked to him, but he just ignores me when I talk about God. Or they will say, I've invited him to church over and over and over, but he's just not interested. In fact, I invite him every Sunday when I'm leaving. I said, I'm sure I would like you to go with me. And I've invited him over and over, but preacher, he's, he's just not interested. Or I hear them say, I've begged him to give his heart to Jesus, but he doesn't want to hear it. Listen, if you're one of those ladies and you have an unbelieving husband, or if you're, if you're a, a believing husband, you have an unbelieving wife, I want you to be encouraged that there is still hope because that spouse, they might refute what you say, but they cannot ignore how you live. How you live makes an impact. That's what Peter is talking about here. And so Peter is saying to these, these dear godly women, show your husband the transforming power of the gospel. Don't just tell him about it. You've told him about it many times and it still falls on deaf ears. Don't just tell him about the transforming power of the gospel. Show him the transforming power of the gospel. That's what he's talking about in verse 2. When they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Don't just talk about your faith. Live it. Demonstrate it. You know, for a lot of these ladies that I've talked to over the years, their husbands have a distorted idea of what a Christian is. I talked to a lady right after the first service, she, exactly what she told me. They have a distorted idea of what a Christian is because perhaps they grew up in a, in a hard environment. They grew up in a broken home and they have a very distorted idea because of what they witnessed their mom and dad and church and all that. Very distorted idea of what a Christian is and they don't want anything to do with it now as an adult. Or maybe they watch people at work who claim to be Christian, but they're anything but that in their actions. And they have a very distorted idea of what, how a Christian lives, and, and they don't want anything to do with it. And what Peter is saying here in verse 2 is, let them see what a real Christian is and how a real Christian lives. Let him see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Validate the gospel by the way that you live your life. Just validate. Show them that Jesus is real by the way He lives in you. Your husband may or may not respond to your words, but they likely will not be able to ignore your example. There's a country song that I've heard recently that really disturbs me. I'm not a country music fan. I've made that known before. But 
but I, I guess this is country music. There is a country music song that I really do not like. It really disturbs me. In fact, it disturbs me so much, I'm not even going to tell you who sang it or sings it. Though, in today's world, you can find it on your phone real quick, I'm sure. Just try not to do it until after the service, okay? I'll tell you about the author of the song, the man who sings the song. He is in the Country Music Hall of Fame. Uh, he's a member of the Grand Ole Opry. He's won 21 Grammys and 18 CMA Awards. And this particular song was actually nominated for a Grammy this year. And the reason I don't want to give you his name is because the song breaks my heart when I hear it. The title of the song is, When My Amy Prays. It's a song about his wife, who is quite famous herself in the Christian music industry. And the song, this, the lyrics say this, All my life I've known of Jesus. He does not say all my life I've known Jesus. All my life I have known of Jesus, but that connection never came. And when my world was torn to pieces, I still couldn't call His name. But when Miami prays, when Miami prays, that's when I see His face. She gave me my first Bible and it sits right beside my bed. On the nights my hands are rattled, I turn the pages, but it's seldom read. But when Miami prays, when Miami prays, that's when I feel grace. Here's a man who admits he's not a believer. All that spiritual stuff is not for him. But he notices something in his wife that he can't ignore. When his Amy prays, he senses that God is real. You see, in the home, you have the opportunity to show your unbelieving husband the transforming power of the gospel. And that's what Peter's talking about. He's writing to broken-hearted women who are struggling with the idea that my husband just will not put his faith in Christ. He ridicules my faith. He ignores the way I live my life or whatever. My, my husband's just not interested in Jesus. And it's, it breaks your heart. And Peter says, there is still hope. You just keep living your life for Jesus and eventually he won't be able to ignore your example. Now, in addition to that very specific encouragement to wives, there is also a very powerful reminder for all of us. And here's the reminder. If I could take what Peter has said to wives and apply it to all of us, here's the statement I would give you to apply it to all of our lives. That is, your life should be evidence that Jesus is real. In your home, where you work, where you go to school, wherever you Go and hang out. Your life should be evidence that Jesus is real. And people who are your friends or your co-workers or in your family, they may disregard what you say, but it's harder for them to ignore what they see. Jesus talked about this very thing in Matthew chapter 5 when He said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Jesus was saying, live your life in such a way that Peter no people notice. Live your life in such a way that though they might ignore what you say, they cannot ignore what they see. Live your life in such a way that you make unbelievers curious. 
When I was a seminary student in Fort Worth, Texas, I worked at an industrial warehouse called W.W. Granger's. I think they just are called Granger's today. Uh, Fort Worth, Texas, I went to school in the morning, worked in the afternoons, and um, this particular business really liked to hire seminary students. Uh, there were several seminary students that worked there, and I think the reason that they liked to hire seminary students was, number one, we tried to be conscientious workers, and number two, they knew we weren't going to steal from the company. And so they liked to hire seminary students. So there was quite a few of us that worked there. My supervisor was a man named Dennis. Dennis was a good man, but he was not a believer. And Dennis was aware of all the seminary students that were working with him. And Dennis watched us a lot. And in fact, he would occasionally ask me questions about faith. He would occasionally specifically mention something that he saw in my life or in the life of one of the other seminary students. And he was curious why we do this or why we don't do that. And he was always asking questions because of what he was seeing lived in front of him. So here's the lesson I hope you remember. Some conversations start by observation. People watch how you live your life. And then they want to know why. Why is it different? Remember the story of Mark Rick? I told you I was going to finish that story. Let me do that now. Mark watched John Peasley and the way he lived his life after he came back that summer. And he was living differently. And it was, made him so curious that he went up and asked John one day, Why are you so different? What's happened to you, man? And you remember in the story, Mark wasn't ready to give his life to Christ because there were some sins he was not ready to give up. That happened when they were college football players. But John didn't fail. John Peasley lived his life for Jesus and he shared his faith. John did not fail. John did exactly what he should have done and all he could have done. Because you can't save anybody, right? So he lived his life for Jesus He lived his life for Jesus and he shared his faith. And people may or may not say yes to Jesus. They they may not always accept Christ. But they never forget what you share with them. And they never forget the way you live your life. Years later, fast forward the story. Years later, Mark is now an assistant coach at FSU, Florida State University. I think he's the quarterback coach. And one weekend, one of the FSU players was shot and killed. His name was Pablo Lopez. He was shot and killed one weekend. And the head coach, Bobby Bowden, called the team together the next morning. Everyone was in the room. There was one empty chair where Pablo used to sit. Bobby Bowden choked up down front, tears in his eyes. He finally got his composure and he said, Men, let me ask you a question. If you'd been the one who had died last night, If that was your chair that sat empty today, do you know where you would spend eternity? Mark Rick said that that question, as soon as he asked it, hit him like a ton of bricks. He said, I knew exactly where I would be and it wasn't heaven. Then he said, and listen to this, He said, almost immediately, the seeds that my friend John Peasley had planted in my life years before came to fruition. Almost immediately, he began to remember what his friend John Peasley had told him, how he'd lived his life. And, And Mark said, it's like the Holy Spirit was saying to me, now is your time. 
So Coach Bowden ended his talk by saying, if any of you guys want to talk, my office door is always open. The next morning, John Rick, or Mark Rick, showed up at his coach's door. Coach, have you got a minute? Come on in. Coach, you ask a question. Do you know where we're going to spend eternity? And I do. But it's not where I want to go. Can you tell me how to be saved? Bobby Bowden got up, closed the door, got the Bible off of his desk, opened the Word of God, shared the plan of salvation with Mark, and Mark prayed to receive Christ that day. Here's what I want you to understand. The lifestyle that John Beasley lived was something that Mark never forgot. So when tragedy came and he was confronted with his own mortality and he was confronted with that very important question, then he said yes to Jesus. Some conversations start with an observation. So before I end tonight or today, I really want to ask you the same question that Coach Bowden asked his team. I'll ask it this way. If your recliner or your chair at the kitchen table are suddenly empty tomorrow, do you know where you'd spend eternity? I mean, are you absolutely sure about that? For some of you, it might be that you've tried to disregard what your wife has been telling you. But you can't ignore what you see in her life. Maybe you've tried to disregard what your kids have been trying to tell you, but you can't ignore the way they live their life. You tried to justify turning your back on the Lord, but you can't ignore the difference you see in that coworker. And suddenly you come to the realization they have something in their life you don't have in yours. Maybe your spouse has something in their life you don't have in yours and it is so evident. It is so clear. Can I say to you, Jesus is not just someone who lived in the New Testament days. He is someone who is living in your spouse today. Where He's living in your grandkids today. And that's the reason they live differently. Jesus is not confined to the Old Testament. He's still living in the lives of believers today. And here's the amazing part. He wants to live in your life too. And all He's waiting for is an invitation. All He's waiting for is for you to realize, I need that. I want that. I invite Jesus to be Lord of my life. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads as we think about that for just a moment. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, but you've watched others, watched your wife, you've watched your husband, you've watched your kids, you've watched your grandkids, you've watched people at work or at school and You've noticed. You've noticed the difference. That was God at work in your life. 
through the Holy Spirit to convince you that He's real. And working to convict you that you need Jesus too. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you can do that today. God brought you here for that purpose. He brought you here for that purpose because He loves you and wants a relationship with you. But the sin in your heart is what's hindering that relationship. And the only way to have a relationship with the Holy God is to accept His forgiveness that He made possible through Jesus Christ dying on the cross. It is not through your effort. It is not through your goodness. It is through your faith that a holy God loved you enough to allow Jesus Christ to die for your sins so that God could offer you forgiveness. The Bible calls it grace. That God in His grace would give us what we don't deserve. God in His love and grace offers to us forgiveness and a new life and eternal home in heaven. So we're going to stand in just a moment and whether this is your first time here or you've been coming to this church for years, this is your opportunity to respond to Jesus and say yes to Him. Those watching online, this is your response right where you are to make that same commitment to the Lord Jesus. I hope you'll do that today. Let us know about it. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank You that You change lives to such a degree that it becomes noticeable to others. And I pray, Lord, for anyone who doesn't know You, Savior, that today they might come to the realization, I want that, I need that, I claim Jesus by faith. I repent of my sins and I turn to Him by faith. And I pray also that You'd encourage those dear wives or maybe that husband who has an unbelieving wife. I just pray, God, that You'd give them the encouragement. There is still hope. Though they reject the gospel, they can't reject the example they see. I pray that you'll continue to work in the lives of those people. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.